Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It's a story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Some of you know the song. Uh, just maybe to help you follow along as we go through this, we're going to land on, on, at four, four different places during our time in this passage. One, who Zacchaeus is, who he is. Two, who's seeking who. Three, an impossible change of heart. And then lastly, we're going to narrow in on that one word that ends the passage. What does it mean to be lost? So who is Zacchaeus? Who's seeking who? An impossible change of heart. And what does it mean to be lost? Luke 19, 1-11. He entered Jericho and was passing through... And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus! Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. When they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us in this room to believe your word, to believe the words of your Son, Jesus. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would bless our morning together. And Lord, that You would make up for the great lack in me. Lord, who can understand these things apart from the working of Your grace and Your Spirit? And Lord, I pray that You would convict of righteousness, of judgment, of truth, And that this morning, you would do what you came to do. To seek and to save those who are perishing. Work 
through the preaching of your word today, Lord. I am nothing. We are nothing. You are everything. And it's to you we look and in you we hope. Help us, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that because of your righteousness and your promises, we can know that we have help. Amen. Have you ever had something stolen? You ever had somebody come along and take something that belonged to you? Probably it's happened to everybody in this room. At, at one point or another, someone's stolen something from them. From, from them. How, how do you feel after that happens? When somebody steals something, it almost makes you, it leaves you feeling violated, doesn't it? It's more than if somebody insults you. More than if somebody were to, were to strike you. When they, when they take something, theft, it has a unique kind of frustration where you wonder how in the world could a person come along and think that they had the right to steal what was mine? What gives them the right? Well, the answer is nothing gives them the right. No one ever has a right to steal from somebody else. Rich, poor, good, bad. You just don't take other people's things. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You say that in the, in the positive way too. You shall respect the private property of other people. It's wrong to take something from somebody else. If someone lends you something, you take care of it so that it's not lost. And even if an institution has the right given by God to claim a portion of what you worked for, like the government and taxes, or a bank lending a loan. They're still forbidden from extortion. They're still commanded by God, do not take more than is reasonable. But as bad as theft is, the one thing worse than that is when it's tolerated or ignored or carried out by those who are supposed to prevent and punish it. You know, I remember once shortly after Amy and I had moved to Fredericton, uh, we were living in an apartment off of uh, Brookside and Amy had just gotten home from somewhere and she was tired, forgot to lock the door of the car, forgot her purse in the car. Um, well, you know, the apartment manager had actually built a fence all around the apartment complex because they were worried about theft. And the city said, okay, you can put the fence around, but there's a dirt path right here where everybody walks on to, to, uh, to get to the school or to the grocery store, and they come through your property. So you can put a fence around, but you have to leave a hole about six feet wide in the fence so that anybody who wants to come or exit the property can. <laughs> Defeated the whole purpose of having a fence. Well, in the morning, sure enough, someone had gone through our vehicle, took the change in the cup holder, and stole the purse along with everything in it. And so we called the police. They came by, said, well, the doors weren't locked, so it's really your problem, not ours. And the whole experience was incredibly frustrating. Right? That someone would steal in the first place was bad enough, and it was even more annoying that the authorities, whose job it was to protect property, punish crime, and prevent theft, were totally apathetic about it. Well, that was over six years ago. And I probably would have forgotten about it by now. <laughs> Except 
that just a few days later, Amy and I looked out the kitchen window of our apartment and there, walking past our vehicle, going towards a hole in the fence, not 20 feet away, was a woman carrying my wife's purse. <laughs> Brazen, right out in the open, not a care in the world about her crime. And it's one thing to be stolen from. It's something else entirely when thieves can walk around brazenly without any fear of consequences. And it happens all the time. Theft seems to be on the rise and no one is saying anything, let alone prosecuting or punishing crimes. It's a tremendous failure on the part of any system that is supposed to uphold justice. But if you think things are bad today, I would invite you to consider the man in our passage this morning named Zacchaeus. His name, his parents might have had high hopes for him. His name means pure, clean, innocent, or righteous. And he was anything but. Zacchaeus was unclean, he was guilty, he was defiled, and he was evil. He was a tax collector and was one of the worst kinds because not only is he a tax collector, we're told here he is, he is, he is a chief tax collector, right? You say, well, what, what's, so, what's so bad about that? What, why were tax collectors so reviled by the Jewish people? Chief tax collectors were the source of revenue for the oppressive conquering, hated empire of Rome. And Rome didn't have a, a, an IRS or a CRA. They didn't have agents that took care of taxes. They didn't have income tax or payroll tax. In fact, they really didn't collect any taxes at all. The way they were collected was very different. And instead of a government levying a tax on the people, what the government would do is they would divide all of the land and the population under their control into different regions, tax regions, and then, based on the wealth of those regions, they would set, uh, set a number of, of money they think they would get, and then they'd have tax auctions. The government couldn't be bothered to go through all of the rigmarole of going door to door and going around street to street collecting money, and so they would set an amount that they thought could reasonably be provided by a region or a city. And then a publican or a tax collector would come and bid on the opportunity to collect taxes from that region. They would bid on what became called tax farms. That doesn't sound good, does it? Because if you're farming taxes, you're not growing them out of the ground. You're farming them from people. Just for example, just how this worked, the government would come along and say, I think we could raise 100 million, just for example, 100 million dollars from Jerusalem. And someone who had that kind of money, they would come along and say, I think I could raise you 120 million dollars. And somebody else might offer 130 and the winning bid might be 150 million dollars. And then the individual who put that winning bid in, won the auction, he would then pay immediately out of pocket $150 million 
to the state. Sometimes people would bankrupt themselves to be able to do this. It was so lucrative. And so the state would get its money, would get its taxes from this region, but don't think that your taxes would have been paid. Because what the tax collector purchased at that auction was the right to tax this region however he saw fit with the threat of military intervention if the people refused to pay. And if he had spent $150 million, he would tax and tax and tax, not just to recoup the $150 million, but until he made $50 million or $100 million or even $200 million more. Can you imagine if it was you being taxed like this? Right? Thug comes, knocks on the door. There, just outside, is the tax collector, the, the one who paid all of this money to get the right to take yours. And you know you've already paid your portion, right? All of the standard taxes. You've paid the 1% wealth tax. You've paid the poll tax. You've paid the land tax. You've paid the tariffs. You've paid the tolls. But here he comes again, looking for more. New tax, he says. He's eyeing up your wagon. It's a wheel tax. Four wheels. Oh, and an axle tax. This is what they would do. Two axles, four wheels. You'd be taxed on those. And, uh, and we just decided to, just looking at your stove, we just decided to implement a brick tax as well. Two dollars for every brick in your chimney. And in this ancient tax system, taxes... Right, you didn't get a letter saying you have until this date to pay. When the tax collector came, the taxes were due immediately. And if you couldn't pay, well, don't worry. The tax collector is a very rich man. And he can loan you the money to pay the taxes at 2% interest a month. And of course, you accept because it's either that or be thrown into debtor's prison where your family would have to work and scrounge and save until they could finally pay your debt and get you out. But if they couldn't do that, well, you'd all be sold into slavery. That's taxation in ancient Rome. Right? How much would these people be able to tax? How much can you get away with before they pick up pitchforks and revolt? There's the upper limit. And worse, there's no recourse. There's no help. The judges are all bribed. Governing authorities are on the side of the tax collectors. That's what they bought. And you're at the mercy of the greed of whatever tax collector purchased the right to take your money. Take whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and there is nothing you can do about it. And so you can imagine then the fond affections that people would have for tax farmers. They saw them as bullies and as traitors and as thieves. And they were thieves. I mean, just because what they were doing was legal doesn't make it right. And the people knew it. In the Talmud, it's a collection of Jewish oral teachings and traditions that were written down. Tax collectors were placed alongside. So what category do we put them in? Murderers and prostitutes. The rabbis taught they were unclean like lepers. Couldn't be around them. You'd be defiled. They were to be treated as social outcasts, even by their own families. And in, in civic life, they were considered so immoral that they were disqualified from bearing witness in court. 
Who can trust you? You're a tax collector. And if it wasn't enough to be cut off from civic life, cut off from your, your family, they were cut off from the spiritual life of the community as well. They were forbidden from coming into the synagogue. They couldn't purchase sacrifices to offer in the temple. If you, was, if you associated with one, you were unclean and couldn't go to worship. And even though it was conceivable that a tax collector could repent, it was deemed to be practically impossible. Theoretically, it could happen impossible in reality to be restored. This is who Zacchaeus is. He belonged to the class of incredibly wealthy people who purchased the right to extort their own people for personal gain. And it cost him. He was now cast from society. He was numbered among the absolute worst. And he was cut off from God. That's the background to Luke 19, 1-10. You have to have a feel for who this man Zacchaeus is. Right? He's not just some government uh, official pushing a pencil. His wealth is immense. His business is sordid. His reputation is bad. And you know who he might be compared to today? You might compare him to um, maybe a, a mob boss or El Chapo. Right? Getting rich, selling drugs. Getting rich extorting and enslaving people. The, the, the kind of person who is rich and powerful and you wouldn't want to be caught dead with them because they're so evil. This is who Zacchaeus is. It's no wonder when Jesus goes to his place in verse 7, people grumble. And it's hard, hard to believe, really hard to believe, that Zacchaeus would actually want to see Jesus. At the very least, Jesus is considered a prophet, isn't he? A representative of the Holy One of Israel. And we all know he is more than a prophet. We know he is the Holy One of Israel. But in the day, who do people say that he was? A prophet or Elijah, some great holy man. At the very least, Zacchaeus knew this about Jesus. A messenger sent from God. And if Zacchaeus knew anything about God, he knew he was not on his good side. The last person you would expect this tax collector to want to see is Jesus. I mean, imagine, imagine Hugh Hefner wanting to go and see Billy Graham. You'd be scratching your head, wouldn't you? Right? If he showed up at a crusade, paid for the best seat in the house, you'd be wondering, wouldn't you, why is he here? <laughs> Has he just come to make fun? Where's the entourage? This isn't the place for him. He should be back in that filthy mansion. Could you imagine someone thinking that, maybe? Would you be tempted to think that way if you saw a notorious criminal with a bad reputation come in and sit down in here this morning? Would it make you a little uneasy? Maybe you'd think, hey, they don't belong here. Church isn't a place for them. They shouldn't come. Be honest with yourself. What would you think? Would you be glad they came to hear the gospel? Or would you be like the crowd in verse 7, grumbling under your breath? How you answer that question will tell you an awful lot about what you think of Christ and what you think of your own righteousness or self-righteousness. 
How you answer that question will tell you if you understand what Jesus meant when he told the Pharisees, it is the sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. And our attitude to every person in this place, every person who asks, who is this Jesus? Can you tell me anything about Him? Our attitude ought to be one of rejoicing. Happy that they're here. Happy that they are able to hear now from our lips about the Savior. Happy and, and recognizing that they're in the right place. They are in the place they need to be. Every bit as much as a person who is sick needs to be in the hospital. And Zacchaeus knows, maybe a little bit with more awareness than everybody else in the crowd that day, that he is spiritually sick. And so when he hears that Jesus is coming to town, the prophet who has been healing the lame, curing the lepers, washing the consciences of the prostitutes, the prophet who recruited a tax collector as one of his own disciples, when he finds out he's coming to Jericho, Zacchaeus has to see for himself. He finds a path Jesus is taking. He goes, but he can't see. Crowds too thick and he can't see over them because he's too short. It says it right there in verse 3. And so he goes and he climbs up a tree. I mean, surely this is embarrassing for him. He's, he's got on his most expensive robe. He climbs up in this tree. He would have exposed himself to the ridicule of, of all of the crowd, crowd that hated him. But he did because he had to see Jesus. Now, is this Zacchaeus seeking the Lord? Right? Who's seeking who here? He's curious about Jesus, to be sure. It says he seeks him out. He wants to see him. That much is obvious. Well, why? Well, he's heard the stories. Thinks there's something to them. And so Zacchaeus, he wants to be in the right place at the right time. Listen, this is not a story about a man seeking Jesus. It's not. You say, well, Corey, look at everything he's doing. I would just say, read the last verse in the passage over again. That summarizes what's happening from Jesus' own mouth in this entire passage. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if anyone is to be understood as the seeker in this account from the pages of Scripture, it's not Zacchaeus. It's Jesus Christ. And the searching or the seeking that Zacchaeus manifests here, it's not one of earnestly desiring salvation and seeking the Lord to be saved. I don't think so. The book of Psalms, the book of Romans, Romans 3, they both make it clear, no one seeks God. Nobody. And if that's true, and it is, then what is this diminutive tax collector doing? What kind of seeking is going on here? I think you're all, you're probably wondering, yeah, what kind of seeking is it? I think you're all familiar with what's happening here. It's the kind of seeking that curiosity creates. Zacchaeus' interests are piqued. He, he wants to know more, and so he seeks. And we all know people like this. You may be like this yourself. You've heard about Jesus, or you heard of church, or you were invited by a friend, and so you came. Maybe you're watching online, and... and uh, uh, it came up as you were scrolling through. Your interests were piqued. What's this? You watched. 
Maybe you're worried about the circumstances of the day. All the turmoil around you and the anxieties of your own heart. And so you add Jesus to that long list of remedies that you're willing to try. Or maybe you sought Jesus or know someone seeking and are compelled out of nothing but their own curiosity. Some people just want to try something new. Whatever it was, you're here. And like Zacchaeus, you came seeking something. That's why anyone comes, right? And I don't mean comes to church. I mean comes seeking religious something. Maybe they come to church. Maybe they, maybe they ask somebody who's their friend who they know goes to church. They want to know something about Jesus. And so they come to church or they come to Christ or they come to a Bible study or they pick up a Bible or they watch a sermon. They believe that there's value. They believe there's something to be found there. And though we don't know why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. We don't know what his intentions were, but you know what yours are. You came looking for something. But as it is with so many, they come seeking one thing and are surprised when they discover it was actually the Lord seeking them all along. And they came looking for something. Zacchaeus went looking for something, but he ended up the one being found. What else could explain the man who comes to church at the behest of his wife? Not really sure he wants to be there. Yeah, I'll go. And he leaves being a new man in Christ. What else could explain the young man who uh, comes and hears the Gospel because he's pursuing a young lady and after hearing uh, the Gospel, a greater love for Christ has worked in him than he ever had for the girl. Or, or what about who's someone who they start listening to sermons, maybe reluctantly, they pique their interest, they can't explain why they're doing it, except that they feel compelled. And they feel drawn, as it were, almost against their will. I mean, certainly they could think of a hundred better ways to spend their mornings or spend their evenings and listening to sermons. But then after an encounter with Christ, they cannot imagine a single better way to spend their time than with Him. Or even the angry scoffer picks up a Bible only to mock or to laugh. But upon reading of the love of Jesus Christ and the glories of God, that hard heart of His is melted down. And now the God He hated, He loves. And with as much force as He despised Him, He praises Him. What can explain these things? It's just, a, just a, a changing of the mind, right? Like when somebody realizes they're pronouncing a word wrong and so they start pronouncing it differently. It's more than that. It's a total shift in the direction of the heart where the whole person is realigned in his heart and his mind and in his soul. The Bible talks about him being born again. It changes the person. And the God that they once hated, now they love. It's as if He reaches down from heaven itself and grabs hold of them and claims them as His own. This is what Zacche happened to Zacchaeus. And this is what happens to anyone who is saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He draws them with motivations they may not entirely understand. He seeks them by putting it in their hearts to search for Him. And then, when they hear His voice, His effectual call, they come and they follow Him. Verse 5, 
Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, picks him out of the crowd, and calls out to him. And in that moment, it is the voice of the good shepherd calling out to his lost sheep, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus hears for the first time the voice of his eternal master. He climbs down, he follows Christ, and he is forever changed. When you think about it, Jesus singles out the most hated, possibly the most hated, the most notorious sinner in Jericho. But not to shame him, and not to rebuke him, and not to scoff at him, but to command him to receive him as his guest. And yes, anyone who wants to be saved must receive Jesus. But it's not an invitation, it's a command. And it's a command that all of the Lord's lost sheep obey when they hear. And it's in this moment that Zacchaeus is redeemed. When he's called by Christ. And when that happens, what does he do? He receives Jesus, we're told, joyfully. And not only does he receive him, he renounces his wicked life and sets out to make amends. Almost in an instant, Matthew 6 becomes a reality in Zacchaeus' life. No one can serve two masters. Three will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Zacchaeus almost seems to know this implicitly. And it's the money that goes. He gives half away to the poor and says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them back four times. So why four times? There are laws in the Old Testament for restoration and restitution. One is if you borrowed something and that something you borrowed was stolen, you had to pay back 120%. Add a fifth, pay it back. Another one was if you took something from somebody. If you took something from someone, you had to pay back double. But in Exodus 22.1, it talks about if you take a, a bull or a lamb, and the, and the word for taking there means to take with violence. If you extort somebody, you had to pay back four times. That's what Zacchaeus does. And you see a change in the heart of Zacchaeus. Once he had total disregard for the law of God. I mean, how could he care about the law of God and keep up his occupation of extortion? He broke every law he could to make the coins in his coffers ring. But when salvation came, so did it change. And the law that was written on the tablets of stone was engraved onto his own heart. And where he used to hoard money and love it more than his own soul, now he's ready to give half of it away. And where he used to break the law, now he's concerned to keep the law. And he wants to make things right. He's turned 180 degrees from who he used to be. Not to be saved, but because of the work of Christ in his heart. He keeps the law now for Christ's sake. This is true for everyone who comes to Jesus. They receive a new heart after they come. No one has to, has to prod them. No one has to force them. God transforms their heart in such a way that now they want to serve the Lord who saved them. They become changed people who do changed things. And so it's not just something that happened for Zacchaeus. Everyone who comes to Jesus, they want to make things right with those they've wronged. 
They want to do it for His sake. You know, if they've been doing what they know is wrong, breaking His commands, now they want to keep them. If they've been, been harboring bitterness, now they want to forgive. If they've been cruel, they make it their aim now to be kind. And if they've been greedy, they set out to be generous. When Jesus comes to get hold of a person, He gets hold of the entire person. The whole person now belongs to Him. When they come to Him, the one thing they can't bring with them is their sin. You know, I mentioned earlier that all kinds of people are welcome at the cross. All kinds of people are welcome to come and are to be received with joy by the church. And that's true. But this is a truth that I saw abuse again and again and again when I was a young Christian in youth groups. And I remember hearing sermons, if you could call them sermons, about how Jesus loves the unlovable and accepts the outcast. And, you know, if your parents don't understand you, Jesus does. And they would even talk about His death on the cross, but there was never any notion of sin that needed to be repented of. And what happened was there were all kinds of people who were socially unacceptable for one reason or another. And when they heard these sermons, they would come. But they would bring all of their sins with them. And if you told them, well, no, you can't bring that along, you were called an unloving hypocrite. And the gospel was turned into a message of acceptance without repentance. Come to Jesus and He'll accept you. Come as you are, just as I am. And again, this is absolutely true. You can't come any other way than you are. You don't need to clean up your act before you come, but when you come... You've got to leave that old life behind you. If you're sitting at the back and you want to come up to the front, you'd have to leave your chair behind you. If you come to Christ, the old life of sin that you used to live, you count the cost, you see it, you leave that behind you. Right? Jesus said, count the cost. He said, carry the cross. No one can serve two masters. Repent and believe. Go and sin no more. And if you come to Christ, that life of sin that used to characterize you, you look at it and you say, no more. No to sin, yes to Christ. And sometimes those sins will be put to an end immediately. And others, it's going to be a war for the rest of your life. But your relationship to sin will change. I mean... Let me, let me put it this way. Before you come to Christ, sin rules you and masters you and controls you. It does. You are a slave to it. And some of you may feel that slavery and bondage more than others. When you come to Christ, you are coming asking Him, Lord, set me free and save me. Now, does that mean you're never going to sin again? No. Of course not. The one who says he has no sin does not know who God is. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian and fight against your sin? It means you say, now I am leaving it behind, and if it creeps up behind me to get hold of me again, I will make war on this sin. And when I do fall, and you will stumble in many ways, what do you do? You don't get up and run away. You get up and you run again to Christ. 
The righteous man, though he falls seven times, what does he do? He rises. He gets up. And he goes to Christ again to be cleaned. And presses on again with a renewed effort, knowing that he has been forgiven. John Owen said, It is the work of living men to fight. And anyone who is a Christian who is alive in Christ, you want to know what they look like? They are making war against the sin they used to love. It's what happened to Zacchaeus. It's what happened to Paul the Apostle. It's what happens to Nicodemus. It's what happens to anyone who follows Christ. They count the cost. They carry the cross. They lay down their lives and live for Him. And you think, maybe you hear this and you think, I don't know if I can do that. Sin has such a grip on me, I don't know if I could ever break free and come to Jesus. Well, I've got good news for you. You can't. You can't do it. And everything here that Zacchaeus did, all of his newfound dedication to Christ, it is impossible for man and only happens by the hand of God. Why is it so important? Because if you feel the pull to come, you'll recognize it's not clean yourself up and come. It's, Lord, I want to come. Deliver me and I'm coming. You know, just one chapter earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus encounters another rich man. Chapter 18. This man is a rich, young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he asks, comes, he's seeking, he wants to be saved, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him what he has to do. Keep the law perfectly. The man says, I've done all these things ever since I was little. And so Jesus tells him, okay, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And the man goes away very sad because his possessions were so great. And verse 24, it says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Do you know why Zacchaeus was able to give away half of his wealth and restore fourfold what he had taken to anyone he stole from? You realize that is impossible for Zacchaeus to do? It was impossible for the, for the rich young ruler to do. The only reason Zacchaeus was allowed to do this because, was because the Lord was at work in Zacchaeus that he would see Christ as more precious and more valuable than all of his earthly possessions. Chapter 19, we have another man. Rich man comes to Jesus. But not only is Zacchaeus rich, he is probably the most unlikely candidate in all of Jericho for the kingdom of God. He was an evil man by any estimation. And he doesn't run up to Jesus seeking to be saved. He stands back, climbs up a tree. He doesn't put himself forward. But what happens? Jesus sees him and singles him out. And when Zacchaeus hears the voice of Christ, something impossible happens. And Zacchaeus believes. And now he sees Jesus as better than everything he used to have in his old life. This other man, he's a righteous man. 
He's obtained his wealth honestly. He can say with certainty, I have kept the law since I was little. Anyone who knew him, they would have agreed. Anyone who knew this rich young ruler, they would have said, he is a candidate for the kingdom of God. Rich, philanthropic, honors his parents, good standing in the synagogue. He's a shoe-in. And it was impossible for him to inherit eternal life. One of these two men were saved, and it wasn't the one that anybody expected. The upright rich man and the unjust extorter. One who thought he had no sin and one who knew he was drowning in it. And Zacchaeus is the one who went to his home justified. And what was impossible for man is proved possible for God. He saves the lost and the sick, not the self-righteous and those who think they have no need of the great physician. Why does Zacchaeus believe and why does salvation come to his house? Why does the impossible happen for one of these men and not the other? Jesus sees him and wants him and calls him and cleans him and sets him on a different course. And the other rich man, he just lets him go on loving his money. Now I know some people hear this kind of thing and they may say to themselves, well, if Jesus is the one who's doing the seeking, really isn't anything for me to do. And so I'm just going to sit back and wait or sit back and lament. Listen, you don't need to be concerned about what God is doing up in heaven. You need to be concerned about what you're going to do here on earth. You're lost. You're damned. You are set to perish your only hope is Jesus Christ, the Savior. Politics can't do it. A pay raise can't do it. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And you say, I don't know if, I don't know if it's possible for me or not. I don't know if, if God's chosen me or come. Listen, God commands all people everywhere to repent. When you say, well, I want to come, but I, if you want to come, but you don't know if you can, you don't know if you... Lord, deliver me. I want to come, but I don't know how. He knows how, and He can get you there. You seek Him. You go after Him as He is seeking and drawing you. And listen, I don't know where everyone here is this morning, and I don't know where you stand with Christ, but you know where you stand with Him. And there might be some people here who count themselves lost, I say, I, I don't know Him and I know it. I want to speak to you directly now and I want to speak on that one single word at the end of our passage. Not about Zacchaeus. To you. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. If you're not in Christ, you're lost. It's true. Maybe you think, well, if I'm lost then I must also be then forsaken and forgotten and left out of the kingdom of God forever. Lost and condemned for all time. They go together, don't they? Not at all. It's hardly true that lost means forsaken, and you know it. Have you ever lost something? You ever lost something? And when you've lost it, how do you act? With apathy or with concern? 
When you lose something, you just shrug your shoulders and let it go. You might not have noticed the thing for a year, and then when you notice it's missing, all of your attention now is focused on finding that one thing, and you, your interest is greatly renewed when something is lost, when something goes missing. And if it's a person who is lost, isn't that concern multiplied a hundred thousand times? You know, I see posters up all around, missing persons. You see them, God help them. When a person's lost, the fears and concerns of even of strangers are worked up, aren't they? All you might know is the name and the picture, and yet you earnestly desire the person to be found. How many times have you seen in the news someone is lost and are all of a sudden overwhelmed with a concern for them? And didn't you wish that there was more that you could do? Didn't your heart burst with joy at the news that this person was found alive, safe? Because when someone is lost, they become the attention of the entire community, don't they? It's a universal terror to be lost. Everybody knows it. And because you are lost spiritually, there are many of God's people deeply concerned for you. There are many of God's people praying for you and ready to rejoice and receive you with open arms even though you may not have even met them or know them. And it's not only in the church, but we're told here Christ Himself is seeking the lost. Christ knows that you're lost. And because of that dreadful condition, wandering aimlessly, blind in the wilderness, seduced by sin, it puts you in the forefront of His mind for no other reason than His desire to find you and to save you. And at the finding, Christ and all of heaven rejoices. He tells a parable, doesn't he? About a shepherd who has 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. And the shepherd, what does he do? He says, ah, it's just one sheep. I've got 99 more. You know, let it go. He leaves the 99 behind and he goes out in search of the one. And he searches high and low and in the, in the hills and in the valleys and near the rivers until he finds this sheep. And when he does, he picks it up and puts it over his shoulders and carries it home rejoicing. That is Christ's attitude towards you this morning if you are lost. All of heaven rejoices when a single sinner repents and is found. But you can hardly believe it. Your shame makes you unfit for heaven, unfit for Christ, unfit for eternal life and the life to come. And you expect a lie that people believe. You expect that if you come sinful as you are, you will receive a blow or a stern face or a heavy hand. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody who comes to Christ receives those things. To deliver you from them is the reason why He came. And He will take you up, as it were, in His arms and carry you to glory and all of the angels in heaven will rejoice when He does. It's not just joy in heaven. We have been speaking of the lost. But have you ever been lost before? Really lost? It fills you with fear, doesn't it? I may never see home again. 
This might be it. I can die in this wilderness. My bad decisions have brought me to a horrible end. And even though I know out there somewhere there is a way to get back home, it's impossible for me to find it. What joy would fill your heart when you heard the voices calling your name? You don't know who the rescuers are. You don't know their names. You don't know what they look like. You don't know anything about them except the sound of their voices. And yet in that instance, at only the sound of your name on their lips, you love them. And you cling to them. And you are thankful for them. And you feel that nothing would be too costly to give in gratitude to them. Not to bribe them to save you, but out of the sheer gratitude of having been found. And so it is with the seeking Savior. Do you hear the voice of Christ this morning? You may not know Him at all, but He knows you. He's known you since you were formed in your mother's womb. He knew your name before creation itself was founded. Maybe you came here this morning and Jesus Christ is nothing but a name to you. And you still, having sat here for an hour, may know very little. But you hear His voice seeking to save you who are lost. And does it put a spark of joy into your heart to hear that voice? You who are lost, spiritually lost? Does the voice of salvation excite you with hope? How can it not move you to come? And what joy would you forfeit by staying lost? What joy would you be willing to sacrifice? And what reason can you give possibly for not running to the voice of your Savior this very moment when He has come so far from heaven to earth, from glory to shame, to rescue you? You imagine somebody sitting there in the wilderness and they hear the voice of the rescue party coming and they've been lost for, for months and are on the verge of starvation. And, and, and here they can hear the trees rustling behind them, see the lights, but then they find some curious insect or some, some unique rock and they ignore their rescuer so they can fixate on this thing that they've found. Wouldn't you say to that person, what a fool that they've been? They've let salvation pass them by. And yet if you go out of here without Christ, letting salvation pass you by, don't be like the fool who has traded his life for a trinket or a rock. Or like Esau who trades eternal life for a bowl of soup. Do not let such a great salvation pass you by. Joy unspeakable is there to be found. The joy of a church praying for you, ready to welcome you. The joy of Christ who seeks you and rejoices over you. And your own joy as one rescued from the jaws of hell. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And He seeks you this morning. He is seeking. And through His Word and through the preaching of it, He calls you to come. He calls you to, to leave behind those things that are evil, to make war on them and believe on Jesus Christ. He calls to you like He did to Zacchaeus to receive Him, not as a guest in your home, but by faith in your heart. And if you think it's impossible, I can't receive Him. I've done too much wrong. I've sinned too many times. I've hurt too many people. The truth is this. 
You have sinned more than you even think. But the one thing you haven't done is out-sinned the mercy and grace of Christ. And Christ will forgive anyone who receives Him by faith. He will forgive anyone who comes to Him in repentance. If your sin is great and sickening to you, He came to save the sick. And if you're lost, He came to seek and to save those who are lost. If you're in bondage, a slave to the things you hate to do, He came to set the captives free. And if you wander as someone in darkness, we read it this morning, He is the light of the world. Those who are wandering in darkness have seen a great light. And if you feel the condemnation of your guilt, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including all of yours. There is not one single reason for you to go on another moment failing to trust in Jesus Christ. He has come, and He has come for you. And if you hear His voice this morning, turn and follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would be merciful as You are merciful and gracious as You are gracious, Lord. You desire that all men would come to repentance. You came to seek and to save those who are lost. Lord, You know all things. No one is too lost for You to find them. No one is too sinful for You to save them. No chains are too strong on the hands that You can't snap them free. Lord, You came for those who are sick. For those who are weak. For those who are spiritually bankrupt. Not for the righteous. Thank You, Lord. We have no hope apart from You. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Lord, I pray for those who, who hear Your voice this morning calling them that this would be the day of salvation for them. That You would deliver them and save them, Lord. Lord, if they don't know what to do, You know what they need to do. And I pray, Lord, that You would bring them. And if they can't come, Lord, then they would just fall on You in trust and hope that You would save them. A broken and contrite spirit, Lord, You will not despise. A smoldering wick you will not snuff out, and a bruised reed you will not break. You came for the very worst man in Jericho and saved him and added him to your kingdom. No one is outside of the reach of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would give, Lord, sinners here this morning the grace to come. And I pray that all of us would remember that we are saved by grace alone and would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought and Lord I I just want to pray for the parents Lord how desperately they would search for a child if that child was lost in the woods Lord our children are spiritually lost and I pray that we would seek Lord their salvation with all of the effort we would if they were 
lost in the world. And our neighbors, Lord, are lost and they don't know it. Help Your people to know and to see what it means, Lord, that we live amongst a people who are lost and in darkness. And that we would be far more concerned, Lord, than the people who are on the missing person posters. That we would, as You have been sent, Lord, be sent and go to seek and to save those who are perishing. It's in Your name we pray. It's to You we look, our great hope in life and death and life to come. Amen.